All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Arthur Companies podcast. I am uh, your host, Patrick Erickson. I'm here with Brent Roberts. Brent, how are you doing? Uh, good, Patrick. Uh, what episode are we on? We're, now? I Do think, we know? Episode yeah, nine? This is episode 10. 10. I feel like there's... Oof. There's an, it's an event, Brent. It is an event. This we need to make sure we have like a sign that we can hold up like episode 11. Yes. Signs yeah. are great <laughs> for, for audio only media. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to a great start. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, we already did a little intro of you, um, but I had some questions about your work experience. And since your interview, front page of the Harvey Herald. Oh, Welcome, Brent Roberts. Front right? page. In fact, I got an email that said, to celebrate your front page, Yeah, let's frame it. And they, they offered me a 30-day trial, hang it on your wall trial, to decide if I want to buy this thing. It was, I wasn't really sure how to... Uh, how much? How to, it was like $240 or something oh, like that. And I was like, you know... That's a great deal. <laughs> I bought the $1 paper myself. I might be able to... There's, but, uh, there's a pretty good chance your front page news again. I, well, I'm, I don't know. There's, there's a lot going on in this town, according to right. the, uh, to the, to the gentleman that interviewed me, lots of things going on in the town of Harvey. And there is, there's, so, there is a lot of, a lot of things going maybe on. Maybe one day I'll make it back on there. Yeah. Yeah. I think you will, but it's not every day that we as North Dakotans get, uh, get someone to travel several states to greet us, to live with us, <laughs> to, to do life with us. That's right. That hasn't happened very often, so we're happy to have you. Oh, you know, it seems like it's happening more and more. I've heard about uh, quite it's a few true. people here recently moving out, actually, from Washington. I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. No, we, um, we're, we're, we're certainly happy to have anyone who wants wants to move on in. We're we're long geog- <laughs> or long acres and short people, I guess. Within right? within reason. Within right? reason. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Not everyone's invited. Yeah, just come out and make sure you're part of the community. That's what we need. Yeah, no. That's, that's the most important part. And you certainly have become a part of the community quickly. So, <sighs> trying. Cool. Trying. Yep. Definitely trying. Yeah. So, we know you worked, we worked in, that you traded grain internationally. Yep. And, uh, for those of you listening, like this is as as little rehearsal as we've ever done for a podcast. So, <laughs> podcast number ten is completely raw, and if we never post it, then then uh, well, maybe maybe you've missed out, maybe you haven't. But anyway, I've had questions for Brent because you've been here for how long? This the the end of this week today. I guess it's a Friday, so this marks the end of eight weeks. Eight weeks, two months Time with flies. the Arthur Companies. Yeah. Time is flying. And, and I have had questions. I've asked you some questions about your your experience trading grain internationally, uh, and I had more. So I was like, sure. "Hey, why don't we just record it and see what <laughs> happens?" Right? Absolutely. Because <laughs> Brent's Brent's uh, Brent's kind of a big deal. So whoa, <laughs> I know, I know. There was I, there's a Ron Burgundy quote there. I, we have to we have to challenge Ron Burgundy's podcast. That's so right. we had to quote him, right? There you go. So tell us a little bit about just loading a vessel and and how often that was a, a part of your life, making great on a vessel. Uh, you know, there were several years. There, there's always been good and bad years. Obviously, sure. you guys are familiar. Um, those of you that are listening, you know, if you're a farmer or or, or just working in the industry, you, you realize the the ebbs and flows that we have with test weight, moisture, FM, right. you know, whatever the case may be. So, obviously, you know, in order to sell the cargo, you have to meet, you know, whatever grade requirement that they 
buy on contract. And then if you know that there's some kind of an issue, you try and get ahead of it. You call the buyer, you say, hey, you know, we're having issues with moisture. Is there any kind of, um, you know, can you give me any kind of discount or whatever the case may be where, I've, you know, they'll discount you and take two tenths higher or something like that. But 99% of the time, there is no change on the contract. The, it, the contract is the contract, period. It's very, very commercialized. Okay. Um, so then typically, like, let's say a 60,000 metric ton uh, corn vessel, yep. which takes about 2.4 million bushels. And that is what they call a Panamax. Yep, it is correct? a Panamax. That's yep. correct. Yeah, Panamax is over 900 feet long. Right. Um, usually have seven hatches. Uh, the hatches open up in various ways. Um but so we have to line up six shuttles, okay. um, BNCP combination thereof, uh, and try and get them to within a couple of days of when we want to load the vessel. Okay. So, and we typically, when, when I was out there at United Grain, we could load a vessel like a Panamax of corn, typically took about 48 to 60 hours, okay. roughly, depending upon how good the logistics were going. And, and what did you have for on-site storage? On-site storage, there's a little over 8 million bushels of working space. Okay. So the corn and the soybeans kind of shared what they called, you know, one house. Sure. And then the wheat was in another house, and then they had three auxiliary bins, 700-plus um, thousand each. There was three of them. So okay. pretty good working space, obviously. Yep. Um, but, but you were still transloading... Six unit trains onto yeah. one vessel at a time. Yep, every time. I mean, obviously with wheat, sometimes there's 30,000 metric ton, 35, 42s. So there's handy maxes, panamaxes, um, supramaxes. You know, there's different vessel types. So they would take different things. And sometimes we had what we called a grocery boat. And it would literally have three or four commodities on it. So it'd be sure. like a 50,000 metric ton vessel that had four, you know, four different things on it. And that actually took a little bit longer because you had to, you sure. know, you're shifting over, moving yep. things around, you know, especially when you're blending white wheats or spring wheats or, or winter wheat, whatever the case may be, those typically take longer. So okay. the sand and gravel, i.e. soybeans and corn, typically took less time and took more quantity. So I always referred to it as the corn and soybeans were like the, the, the Walmart of exports. Okay. okay, so it's all about volume when it comes right. to that. You weren't necessarily making margin. It was all about volume. The margin maker or margin opportunity existed within the, the wheats. The grocery boats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and United Grain's really good at blending. They were super duper good at blending. That's their bread and butter was wheat. So we'd line up six trains. Um, typically, you would, you know, obviously you buy halves, first half, last half of a month. Sure. And then yep. you would work with the shippers trying to get timing down. Um, as they would come in, you know, typically what you'd want to do is direct load or direct hit some of the sure. trains onto the vessel, yep. reduces the amount of BCFM, the screenings that you right. have to sell out. That just, and did yet, sense. did you have a leg that literally went from a train hopper to a vessel? Kind of. I mean, there was yeah. the, the screener cleaner was in between. Sure. So you kind of like loaded it direct into the loadout and then the loadout onto the spout. Yep. So Yes and no. I mean, it didn't have to sit there. It didn't have to go through a bunch of different hoops or on, along at a bunch of different belts. So, sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, you would it would start out. You know, obviously, it depended upon rain, things like that could shut it down. Um, 
And then you would just load. And once it was finished, you know, you would have an overfill underfill, just like on a train and sure. you get a hold of the, you know, whoever the buyer was. And typically it worked on, on us hours. So okay. I would always do exchanges super early in the morning, say eight thirty, nine o'clock. I mean, super early for them. Yeah, absolutely. For us. Right. Yep. Um, and then we would price it out and, you know, get paid within, you know, pretty quickly, less than 24 hours typically, because it was cash against documents. So sure. Yep. Yeah. And then it would take roughly, say, a, a, a vessel from uh, Vancouver, Washington to, uh, you know, somewhere in Japan typically took about 14 days to get there to okay. transit across. Um, so it would transit and then it would come into port. And then depending upon the congestion, it would move into its spot and it would unload. Okay. And how long um, did you, did you have contracts with dry shippers where it, uh, you were turning a, a ship just like we tra- turn trains? So we never did that. Okay. Um, some typically you buy your vessel freight from some owner or some broker or broker. something in between. Yeah. You can do um, some kind of an agreement where you, it's your vessel and you basically, it's called a time charter and you would charter a certain specific time, like one year's worth of, uh, movement and you could send it wherever you wanted and so okay. you could make as many trips and that actually usually garnered a bigger discount for vessel freight because okay. they knew it always had a home right yeah, it wasn't right. just sitting bobbing somewhere so right. that was something that they were working their way into when I exited because they didn't really trade vessel freight up until about gosh on on the regular up until about two years ago well you know, it would be here and there but if i remember right dry ships um dry ships i'm sorry that's a company of a, a uh, that makes dry shipping vessels if i remember right but anyway they were the world was really long dry freight yeah for a time correct yeah in is fact, that is two years ago when that started to kind of heal itself up yeah it was funny at one point in time um i want to say it was around 18 or 19 i could be off a little bit there but there was vessels actually being destroyed that were right. one or two or three yeah. years old because there was so many vessels that were had out nothing there. to do right and yep. a lot <clears throat> there's quite a few vessels that are say 10 years old but their depreciation value is kind of gone so they're now they're just earning gravy at this point. Right. And there's a lot of companies that went out of business because everybody wanted to get in after 08 to 2010. Yeah. I mean, everybody wanted to be in, right? Because demurrage rates were like 50,000, 100,000. I mean, they were ridiculous. And by the, when I, on my way out there, um, I had seen them as low as 8,000. And here recently, they were just bumping up to like $20,000 a day. So, okay. $20,000 a day. If you say that that vessel is going to get unloaded in Japan on the 30th of May, and it's not unloaded on the 30th of May, it's twenty grand by the 31st. Well, so what it is, so the, the demurrage or dispatch, sure. um, the demurrage for us, so my contract, let's say I had to load the 60000 I had seven days to do it. Uh, let's say vessel shows up on May 1st, okay? okay. Yep. So I have until May 7th to load it. <clears throat> now, yep. sometimes that excluded what they called weather working days, Saturdays and Sundays. Okay. Uh, yep. Even though we worked Saturday and Sunday, we wouldn't necessarily be charged that demurrage time. Okay. So those were great when a vessel would come in like on a Friday, it would pass inspection. We would get two days extra yeah, right away. Kind of get 10 days to load the ship. Yeah. And sometimes we were ready to go like, hey, that vessel's come in and passed. Let's bring it in. We'd load it out. It would leave, say, Sunday night and we would earn full 
dispatch, which is half of whatever the demerge. So if the demerge was say 10,000 or $20,000, we'd earn $10,000 for that seven days. But it rarely happened that way. Is there any, it, is Washington, I'm um, sorry, Vancouver, Washington, is there, it's on the Columbia, am I right? Yep, it's is on it, the Columbia River, yep. Are there ports upstream on the Columbia? Is there barge traffic upstream very far? So the barge traffic goes all the way up to the Snake River. It does, okay. Yeah, so up into Idaho. Yeah. Um, and there's actually a lot of barge shippers that run up and down the Columbia and the Snake. Did you transload anything from Idaho? Yes, we you would did. bring in wheat, you but would. not corn. Okay. Typically, corn um, didn't come in on barges on the PNW, at least not to our facility, because our barge leg would just beat it up. It was a, it was a gravity leg as opposed to like the Gulf, where theirs is a little bit different. I mean, they drop a bobcat right into the barges yeah. Yeah. and shove things around. That yeah. just does not happen on the PNW, right? Okay. So, the, but the barges are also double the size. Oh, they, they are, are on the Clum- or on the uh, Mississippi River. So the Mississippi River is usually fifty to sixty-five thousand bushels. Yep. The Columbia River is usually anywhere from eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand. Hmm. So they're double the size. Is it a deeper passage? <clears throat> Must be. Yeah, it is. It's, it's all about the lock system. It doesn't run as fast as the Mississippi River. You have any idea how many locks are on the Columbia? <sighs> I think it's less than ten, <clears throat> but I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. Yeah. And as we go along, I'm sure that they're going to try and take more and more of them out. Yeah, it seems <laughs> that way. It does. Yeah, yeah. There's no there, the passage on the on the Missouri does not get to Lake Sakakawea. In case you were wondering, <laughs> no, I figured it probably <laughs> we're didn't. not transloading any barges over no, there. Yeah. No, exactly. But no, I mean to to so I've seen obviously both um, loading and un, loading on both the PNW as well as the Gulf. Sure. Um, I've seen unloading in uh, Korea and I've seen unloading in Japan. The Japan one was really interesting because there was like uh, 10 different buyers and it was like a road, literally a a two lane road. And on each side you would see buildings just kind of, and there was belts. So this belt ran overhead of the, over the the waters, no, over the roads, over the roads. Okay. Right. And it came from the water. So, Yep. The, they would bring the vessel into the berth, and then they would usually, like in Japan, they had vacuvators is what they call them, and they're okay. just like a gigantic vacuum. Yeah. And they suck it out, and then it would run down the, um, right down the middle of the road, like overhead, of course, on a belt system, and then they had gates that would open up, and they would be like, oh, uh, you know, buyer one is a... Uh, here he's getting X number of uh, metric ton, and it would it would flow to him, and then it, as soon as he was filled, wow. it would shut the gate wow. and it would open up the next one, and they were just constantly running to all of them. Was that the most efficient? I mean, is, are you bringing that up because it impressed you? <laughs> it was very impressive to see. Like they knew, like Jay Oil would say, I, "I know I'm getting this," or you know, whatever mm. feed one, which is a big feed company over there. They bought a lot of corn from United Grain. Um, they would, they knew on almost a day, a daily basis, what they were getting in Sure, because they're constantly turning vessels. And and did they, did they know, do you feel like they know, they knew what, what birth their grain was in? And maybe it was always by total vessel. So maybe, maybe I'm not speaking correctly. Was it? Yeah. Were were they always buying entire Panamaxes most of the time? uh, It depended upon the location. So different, different unload spots and in Japan specifically would say like they knew 30,000 metric ton was going to come off of this vessel. Yeah. Some would take all of it. So 
that was also something that would that I had to get used to when I was selling uh, CNF vessels as opposed to FOB. Okay. So when I sold a CNF, I had to know, okay, dis- discharge. CNF. Yeah. Cost and freight. Cost and freight. Thank yep. you. Yep. So that includes everything, right? I mean, yep. it's it's all encompassing. Everything's on you. Yeah. So, until and basically until that conveyor's trips until over to the customer. Done. That's right. Yep. So whereas FOB, obviously free on board, yeah, right? It it's sense. just yep. it as soon as it left yep. our spout, it was no longer mine. Yep. Sorry. Whatever's on there is yours. So yep. sure. Um FOB is definitely a less risky approach. Mm-hmm. There was more money to be made in CNF potentially during certain times of the year. Sure. Yeah. So, you could hide some of your margin or your net backs right. were hidden a little exactly. bit in the delivered price, right? Yeah. yeah. So on, it was just, it was interesting to see though, like these guys knew, um, you know, Hey, like the buyers over there know like this place buys 60,000, you know, metric ton Panamaxes and we have sure. to feed them 10 per month. And each Japanese company is like, like, uh, some Mitsui is who owned United grain or who owns United grain. And they would say, we know that we have to supply supply like Sabushi. They have to be supplied two vessels a month by Mitsui, one by Marabeni, one by, you know, like each one. So, and they would actually work together, even though they hated each other, like okay. say Toyota two show company <laughs> hated Mitsui, but they would still work together to make sure that none of the customers ran out of feed ingredient. Okay. So, so there were times where they would be like, Oh, our customer's running out. So we, we have to buy from Toyota. So now we're going to charge you, you know, X because your vessel is late or whatever. That was, that was something you had to deal with all the time. And it, it's just like the P and W guys, like we'll ship a train like yeah. here from the country. We'll right. ship one out to like, let's say Louis Dreyfus. Well, Louis Dreyfus maybe doesn't have space for it right now. So they'll call uh Pacific or, yeah. or EGT or somebody and they'll say, Hey, can we swap trains? And they would usually swap. It was it was a thing to keep the railroads running and to keep boats loaded. And, it, and it, it makes sense that it's mutually beneficial. And we see that, yeah. I mean, we see that, um, at least from from my perspective, from the fertilizer industry off the river, you know, they, yeah, there's you constantly to, right? something traded. Barges sometimes trade multiple times from New Orleans all the way up to St. <laughs> yeah. Paul. And, and what and what amazes me is that they, they seem to get along. And, and, and yet, and yet hate each other at the same time, yeah, but they mutually, it's mutually beneficial that customers get right. their product in time. So there's trades being made all the time, all the time. I mean, you know, strange. you know that it has to be done yep. and you know that it benefits your region. Yeah. So 99% of the time you're very, you know, it's, it's very cordial, but, and that was true globally yeah. at, at other, at ports in, yeah. in Southeast Asia. Yep. Absolutely. Like Korea, very common. Um, I, you know, I never visited any ports in China, but I would assume it's, it's pretty much the same. Most of that state owned anyway. So sure. Yep. Yep. But yeah. Yeah. Everybody wanted to make sure that the chain keeps going along, right? Nobody yeah. wants to, nobody wants to break that link. So give, give me a, give me a range of how far sold out you were as far as ocean oh. vessels. Were you, were you, what was the shortest you were sold out? Was it two weeks? Longest was six months or what yeah, was average? so typically sold four to six months out okay um there were times where there was spot cargos needed where they would say hey i have a vessel that's transiting back to the pnw and i need it loaded with corn and it's going to be there in four days okay do you think you can make that happen 
obviously those trades were few and far between, but they would garner quite a premium, obviously. I imagine so. So if you were in the right position, obviously you were able to execute, you could take advantage of it. Didn't happen often, but there were, I mean, you hear about million dollar trades happening. Those are the million dollar trades. Those are typically the ones where you make your best cash. Because, you know, all of a sudden you have to plan out like, we always planned out. We had um, a logistics meeting every Tuesday. Okay. And it was Tuesday afternoon, and the guys from the elevator would come over, sit down with all the merchandisers, and we'd go, you know, product by product, what's coming. You know, and obviously we all had spreadsheets that were all shared. We knew what trains were coming, but it was like, okay, I have a feeling that this is going to be moving. We need to do this, or I've got a buyer who wants me to do this. So it was a lot of give and take amongst your own uh, people. Sure. And so – we would do those meetings to know what's coming, how much. And we always planned, we, we had like, we want to load X amount per month. This is our, you know, this is our, our, our sweet spot. If we load more than that, great. If we load less, okay, that's a bad deal. Sure. Yep. Kind of a thing. So, yep. Yep. Cool. And I know they liked to, I guess you could call it, turn the house three times a month. Yeah. Okay. That's so that, 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 uh, what was it? 7 million bushels. Yeah. So give or the, take. the I sweet mean, you, spot was 20 to 24 sure. million bushels per month. Yeah. And yep. I know that I heard they loaded over two two hundred 230 million this last year. Wow. There's last fiscal. It was a record year for United grain. So that's cool. Um, I know a lot of guys, I think a lot of guys I was asking actually, um, one of the traders back there, I said, Hey, did everybody have a record year this last year? I mean, cause it seemed like, yeah, there was a lot of product moving, and I know up and down the, the Mississippi River, all those guys I was talking to uh, before I moved out here, they said absolutely the the most bonkers spring that they've ever been a part of, and probably the biggest in the history of going out of the Gulf. Okay, so I mean, there's a lot of product moving. Yeah, no doubt about that. Give 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 us a little perspective. You bought from um, well. Tell us a little bit where you originated your <laughs> grain from uh, across the United States. So typically the grain that I would run out of the PNW came from North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, sometimes into Iowa. Um, I've had trains come from Colorado okay. of, of corn. Yep. Um, you know, uh, Colorado, I've seen Iowa, Illinois. Um, those were the most uncommon spots, right? Because freight doesn't make sense to work west. It makes sense to move to the river. Right. Nebraska makes sense to move to the river or to Hereford Market. So typically it was like western Minnesota, northern South Dakota, and all of North Dakota was like my draw. Okay. And it was occasionally from outside of there. Yes. Yeah. Depending yep. upon how basis was, right? If basis is going right. berserk on the PNW, all of a sudden the guys in Nebraska are like, well... I can move corn to the PNW and I can make a nickel better than I can to go to the river. So I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there was, there was times like in 2019 when everybody had the low test weight, high yeah. FM late harvest. Yeah. Right. I was, I was pushing hard to buy um, corn out of Nebraska to try and keep the quality high because yeah. I had just spent the last seven plus years telling all my Japanese and my Korean buyers, this is why you should buy from the PNW. We've got good quality corn. We're keeping track and on base with the, with the Gulf. Like we're, we're cleaner. We're, we have just almost the same size kernel. I mean, we sent kernel test after test after test to Indianapolis and places like that to have 
kernel size measured mm, and sure, you know, all the different protein levels and everything just to do that. And then all of a sudden we're Have faced with worst quality, worst corn quality corn. Two decades. And I always tell them it's, it's funny, you know, everybody says, well, you know, Japan buys number three grade, right? So yeah. you can load down to 52 pounds. Sure. But they were so used to getting 54, 55 pounds. They grew accustomed to it. Right. They didn't and want so that 52 pound anymore. I tell people all the time, it's like, well, they were <laughs> buying, um, you know, top sirloin, but they were wanting, they were getting filet. Right. And so it was like, well, now you're buying top sirloin. You're going to get top sirloin this year. I'm sorry. That's just the way sure. it is. The filet's not available. You were, know? were they the pickiest in quality? And, of, and, and how many different countries were you selling to in Southeast Asia? So I typically sold to my biggest customers were obviously Japan was number one. Okay. Um, and they were a three grade on corn. Yep. Um, and when you say Japan, you were, you were negotiating all, for all multiple different... Yeah. Multiple different companies yeah. in Japan. Yep. I sold oh. to probably four or five different Japanese okay. uh, trading houses. Predominantly, Mitsui was number one because they, they owned United Grain. Okay. I, that, they were my focus, primary okay. focus. But I could sell to others like Itochu, Mitsubishi, Kanamatsu, Marabini, Toyota. So, oh. And then um, Korea, South Korea was a big customer. Okay. Uh, obviously, they buy a lot of corn. And then we were working with, I mean, China, this was their first year back since 2012. Uh, you kind of heard me talking about that yeah, this morning. Yeah, I did. Back yep. in 2012, the MIR-162, yep. um, that was an issue. I had a couple of vessels that were struck you during did. that time. So that was uh, yep. a little bit of panic stricken. So for 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 us, that was Viptera corn. Yep, yep. Viptera. Viptera corn, and we were, we were a part of that. I, I wasn't working for the Arthur Companies at the time. I, I remember a few conversations about a few trains that were a part of it. Oh yeah. So yeah, we were, uh, yeah. and I, and I mentioned to you this morning, the irony of that, that uh, it sure feels like the uh, Chinese held us hostage, <laughs> drove the price of Syngenta down and then bought it in 2014. Well, and I made <laughs> comments before and I, I, I was at a, I was on a panel um, in 2020, March of 2020, right before everything went uh, south. In fact, probably two days before everything got closed down for COVID. Yeah. Um, I was on a panel and they were talking about the U S China trade wars. And, and I, my rebuttal was the U S and China have been in a trade war forever and yeah. it's never going to go away. And they said, well, how do you mean? And I said, well, when they buy a product that's more expensive than what it is about around the time they want to take delivery, cause they buy six to nine months out. Sure. They'll find a way to cancel Sure. Or get you to drop the price. Yeah. And their trade terms are very difficult. Like on soybeans, literally, if they're, if you're eight days late on your contract dates, they can just cancel the contract. Okay. And we're talking 60,000 metric tons and, and of is, soybeans. Is that in writing? It is. So there, there's, there's not a surprise there. No. They just hold you to it on they that They hold one. you to it. It's like, sure. a, I think it's, what is it, GAFTA penalty, right? Okay. So there's different penalties. There's GAFTA. There's, uh, I can't even think of all of them anymore. But there's a bunch of different penalty terms that are in there, you know, that you have to make sure you know what the percentages are. And you have to, I mean, that's why guys get so uptight about shipping windows sometimes during, sure. you know, October, November, yeah. December. They're like, well, you're late by a day. I have to charge you a nickel a bushel. Yeah. It's not because they're trying to make money. They're actually just trying to <laughs> reduce their potential losses, too. Yeah. So it can be very time sensitive. So, so who is the pickiest to quality? China. China was the yeah. pickiest. So yep. China bought uh, number two grade okay. corn. Well, I shouldn't say just China, right? Because China bought number two grade average. 
Korea bought three ga- three grade Q sum, but also had some buyers that were two grade Q sum, and two grade Q sum is like the hardest one to make. Um, just because when you're selling Q sum as opposed to an average, you have to stay within certain limits, and it can be very time consuming. If you you what they call knock over a bin, so you miss it by, let's say you have to get three point two BCFM or less, and you get three point three. Yeah it's getting turned over and put back into the bin and you're going to clean that, that lot, that 5,000 metric ton Mm. all over again for one tenth, you know, it can be very, very expensive. Yeah. So uh, there's certain customers who have chemical specific, like it has to meet these requirements and like China has a mold specific one. And it was like, can't contain more than X grams of mold per, you know, thousand. And it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) how do I even test for this? So there's a lot of companies out there, you know, SGS, places like that, FGIS, they'll test different things, those chemical levels. And so on the corn and soybean side, I mean, soybeans, typically all there was was China, you know, and and they're very specific. Everybody trades China terms basically anymore. And then when it comes to corn, there's, you know, several different factors, but Japan was typically the easiest. Um, Korea was one of the toughest. Vietnam uh, is pretty tough. Taiwan's super tough because Taiwan is two grade Q some. Okay. So there were certain guys um, that were a little more difficult. Yeah. So and you never really knew until it got there. Well, you knew you knew what you sold. Obviously, obviously but you graded yeah, it on the way in. But, but imagine selling a vessel <laughs> yeah. in May for November. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hey, what do you think your corn's going to be like? Oh, that's a good question. It's yeah. uh, just got planted. Uh, you tell me what the weather's going to be like. That was always the response. Right? Yeah, so. if you were selling quality of the 2019 crop in May, you were disappointed. Yeah, yes. let's just say that the first couple of vessels that went out in 2019 caused a lot of heartache for a lot of traders on the yeah. PNW and in the Gulf alike. I mean, it was, yeah. it was, there's been some rough years. I believe it. Um, 2012, 13, 15, 16, 18 was a tough one. 19 was really hard. 1920 yeah. was yeah. tough. So it was tough for us here too. So <laughs> Brent, we're up against 30 minutes here, okay. which is about the time that, you know, I mean, we've had a pretty free flowing conversation here, but you know, people might be getting bored. So we'll, mm. we'll, we'll stop. But uh, you're a Cougars fan, a Washington State Cougars Washington fan. Washington State Cougars, yep. And uh, and yesterday, in case you didn't catch it, no, the North Dakota State Bison had Trey Lance drafted as the third overall pick. Yeah, by the San Francisco 49ers. That's I right. I thought it was a great move I, for them, actually. I, I hope so. Um, who was the highest drafted Washington State Cougar yesterday? Uh, there wasn't one drafted. There, there wasn't one. And in okay. fact, I don't think that they'll have anybody drafted this year at all okay <clears throat> so and and yet it, they are home of ryan leaf ryan leaf drew bledsoe drew bledsoe i didn't yep. know that yep. i didn't know drew bledsoe was a uh, cougar. yeah and then with that crazy guy that's used to, <laughs> that was the quarterback for the jaguars uh gardner Minshew. gardner yep. Minshew. yes yep. yeah i think he's yeah crazy. we've had quite a few uh quarterbacks drafted out of washington state yeah that was uh their kind of claim to fame at one point was there they were called quarterback U. Okay. But, you know. Yeah. Got a couple of Super Bowl winners, but. No. <laughs> the Bison don't have. Well, they, they do have that. I forget that. I, I, Carson Wentz obviously won one. He just he wasn't did. actually he on the field. He just wasn't at the helm, so, right? But that's all right, because now he's an Indy. He's yeah, going to have a great opportunity to turn it around. That's right. So I, th- I keep telling guys, the one thing you should look for here 
We've got San Francisco drafted Trey Lance. Don't be surprised if Aaron Rodgers, I know Green Bay Packers are going to hate, Green Bay Packer fans are going to hate this, but if they trade Aaron Rodgers to the 49ers, maybe Trey Lance is thrown in there. Trey Lance comes back near home. Oh, my. I mean, that think about be, that. That I mean, would be conflicting for a lot of North Dakotans. <laughs> I know, right? How would right. they feel? How would they yeah. feel? So yeah. that was kind of an interesting one when I saw that yesterday. I thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Well, I think we'll we'll wrap it up here. Thanks, yeah. everyone, for uh, listening to another episode. Episode 10. It was a <laughs> big one. 10. So join us next time on the Arthur Companies podcast. And uh, thanks, Brent. Again. You got it. Thank you. Thank you.